0: Hello, good morning to everybody. Welcome to the Edgerton series of the Pacific Council. Uh, Please excuse my voice, but uh, I was yelling a lot last night during the UCLA game. So um, first, I want to introduce Kimberly Marteau Emerson, and then Ken Roth. Kimberly is going to conduct a conversation with Ken Roth today. And we're gonna learn a lot about uh, Chinese uh, political and uh, human rights abuses and, and all the controversies going on in China. Kimberly is a lawyer, civic leader and human rights advocate. From 2013 to 2017, she lived in Berlin with her husband, US ambassador to Germany, John Emerson where she worked both with the U.S. Embassy as well as independently to drive projects on multiple platforms, including promotion of German immigration and integration efforts related to the 2015-16 refugee crisis and addressing the issue throughout Germany of bringing women to the economic and political decision-making table. She's currently writing a memoir about her experiences there and I think that she's pretty much close to culminating that effort. Kimberly worked in the Clinton administration as a senior political appointee and spokesperson for the US Information Agency. She has been an election observer in Nigeria and worked on relief projects in Greece during the 2015 refugee crisis. Uh, She serves on the advisory board of the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Pacific Council as well. One of my earliest memories of Kimberly is her getting up in a Pacific Council event, asking really the most incisive questions. I was thoroughly impressed. Uh, I serve with Kimberly on the board of Human Rights Watch, and we are both members of Pacific Council. As I said, she will direct this conversation. Uh, Also fun fact about Kimberly, she loves dancing and uh, (laughs) just looking forward to uh, reading your memoir, Kimberly. (laughs) Uh, Now Ken Roth, because he directs the hardest hitting and most fearless human rights organization in the world, Human Rights Watch, because his name sends a chill down the spine of human rights abusers making them think twice about the potential cost of their repression. Because he knows so many world leaders and he is on a first name basis with many of them. He gets the access. Ken Roth has been the executive director for Human Rights Watch, which is a global organization serving in 90 countries. These countries include the darkest and the most oppressed And many times these are forgotten countries. I have heard Ken say many times, if we don't do it, who will? Uh, Prior to joining Human Rights Watch in 1987, Ken served as a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington DC. A graduate of Yale Law School and Brown University, he has conducted numerous human rights investigations. He has written on a wide range of human rights abuses, devoting special attention to issues of international justice, counterterrorism, the foreign policies of the major powers and the work of the United Nations. I encourage you to follow Ken on his Twitter account. You know, at first I, I, I get frightened by what he says, but actually it makes me fight harder for all of the things that they do at Human Rights Watch and all of the things that Ken advocates for. Uh, Just a reminder, please submit your questions through the Q&A at the bottom of the screen and then passing it on to you, Kimberly. Thank you for being here, everybody.
1: Thank you, Alicia. And um, I'm not the only one who likes to dance. So uh, let's put a pin in that and the next time we'll get together and, and do that together. Good morning and afternoon to all of you who are joining us. I wanna thank the Pacific Council on International Policy and its fabulous leader, Jerry Green, for hosting the Edgerton series on a rising China, as well as Brad and Louise Edgerton for making the series possible. And of course, a big thank you to you, Ken, for taking the time to share your thoughts on human rights and China today. Let me take a couple of minutes to set the scene before bringing in Ken. China's steeply rising economic power over the past decades has only been exceeded by its increased repression and severe and pervasive human rights abuses domestically since Xi Jinping came to power as president eight years ago. Xi's undisguised efforts abroad to protect China's technocratic authoritarianism through expanding its economic influence and undermining the liberal rules-based order are also hallmarks of his leadership style. As we all know, Xi is heading steadily for a third term or more as president, having pushed through abolishment of term limits in China's constitution. He seems undaunted by voices in the West and other democratic nations criticizing and calling for China to stop its tremendous persecution of the Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim populations, its repression in Tibet, its crushing of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, its massive and ever-widening surveillance of its citizens and its repression of basic freedoms of expression, religion, and assembly, and its unlawful detention, imprisonment, and torture of Chinese human rights activists and government critics. Xi and his government have reacted strongly to outside criticism of China's abuses. First, China uses its economic clout to punish those abroad, be they governments or in the private sector for the smallest of slights. Next, it forces political support and approval from a cohort of states that are now locked into Beijing through its massive infrastructure and real estate investments under the Belt and Road Initiative. Third, G also gets public support from like-minded leaders who are drawn to China's technocratic authoritarianistic model. Next, China uses its propaganda machine globally to hide or lie about facts it deems harmful to its image. And finally, China strategically wields its membership in multilateral organizations to shield itself and other bad actors from criticisms or actions targeting human rights, its human rights violations that might embarrass China or oblige it to honor the international human rights treaties and covenants that it is party to. Though China watches the US with caution and sees it as its only significant rival, Xi seems increasingly confident that no one can thwart China's march to become the world's dominant power. Xi's been reported as saying to his government officials more and more often in the past months, the East is rising and the West is declining. So with that rosy picture, um, I'm gonna turn to you Ken and say, let's start by having you give us your perspective on human rights in China at this time.
2: Okay, well, um, thanks, Kimberly, and, and my thanks to the Pacific Council for, for hosting this event. Um, I think, Kimberly, you know, you, you summed it up pretty well. Um, this is, you know, many people look at China and feel, oh, you know, here's a country on the rise, but in fact, in human rights terms, this is the darkest period in China, really since the murderous crackdown and the Tiananmen Square pro-democracy movement in 1989. And the two come together, I think, because you know while Xi Jinping portrays himself as this confident self-assured leader, in fact, he is terrified of his own people. And he is um, increasingly doing everything he can to prevent the people in China from speaking to each other, from speaking out publicly, from organizing together, And I think one way to understand the worsening repression is from this perspective of fear. You know, he is doing anything he can to prevent, um, you know, what he might describe as a color revolution or some kind of uprising, but really it's just about enabling the the people of China to have a say in how they're governed, which is of course, you know, not the the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, In many ways, the most vivid illustration of that was what has been happening in Hong Kong, where Um, You know, Hong Kong, in a sense, couldn't be allowed to continue as it was, because it showed that when people in China were free to express their views about what kind of government they wanted, the last thing they wanted was a dictatorship of the Chinese Communist Party. And so, you know, the Beijing has imposed the so-called national security law on Hong Kong. It really, you know, should be understood as a Chinese Communist Party security law because it's all about preventing you know, independent pro-democratic legislators, politicians, activists from continuing to do what they've been promised the ability to do under the the one country, two systems agreement, which has now basically been breached. Um, And so we see, you know, variations of that throughout the country. Um, I think at this stage, um, China is best known for the severity of the crackdown in Xinjiang, where the Uyghur population and other Turkic Muslims have faced extraordinary repression. I mean, of a sort that um, it's difficult to think of um, recent precedents. But we don't know what the exact numbers, but you know, I think it's widely known that you know, somewhere in the vicinity of one, 1. 1.3 million Turkic Muslims have been detained for forced indoctrination you know, essentially forcing them to give up their religion, to give up their culture, to become you know, Mandarin speaking quasi-Han Chinese. And you know, as international pressure has mounted um, because of this extraordinary repression, um, the Chinese government while you know, denying any kind of independent inquiry has um, gradually said that you know, these are not detention centers, they call them vocational training centers, but they've announced that people are graduating from these so-called vocational training centers, which seems to mean that they are simply put into forced labor. And so you know, over the last year, the problem of widespread use of forced labor on the part of weaker Muslims. Uh, again, a, um, we don't know the exact magnitude of the problem because independent inspection is not permitted. But it is creating a whole new round of problems for Beijing because you know, global companies are understandably reluctant to become complicit in this forced labor. They're looking at their supply chains. They're not able with any security to determine you know, what is in that supply chain because of Beijing's obstructionism. And so you're seeing more and more companies announce that they're not gonna purchase cotton from Xinjiang or they're, they're not gonna you know, make other purchases from Xinjiang and China's retaliating. It's threatening them with you know, economic and other forms of retaliation. So um, you know, and those, these are just two examples, Hong Kong and Xinjiang, but you can go around the country, you know, obviously Tibet, you know, other minorities, you know, such as um, the, the um, you know, Inner Mongolian population um, has been suffering, you know, again, a kind of an effort to undermine their culture um, any conceivable threat of, of a movement toward independence, even though there's just no prospect of that happening. Um, but you know, even throughout mainland China, um, ordinary people—you know, lawyers who try to defend human rights, um, bloggers who try to speak independently, you know, journalists who might try to probe too far, civic groups that want to speak together in a public manner in a way that the government doesn't want—all of them are facing repression. So it's not a pretty picture at this stage. And again, it all I think stems from this fundamental insecurity on the part of Xi Jinping and his government that um, they need to clamp down because they don't have the consent of the Chinese people. Thanks, Ken. So uh,
1: even without the consent of the Chinese people, and with this clamping down, it does feel like China's increasingly impervious to outside pressure because of all these tactics it uses. What's the strategy to corral China? What will get China to live within the rules-based order?
2: Yeah, I mean, although it tries to portray itself as impervious to external pressure, in fact, the Chinese government is extraordinarily sensitive to Chinese pressure. And the evidence of that is really how hard they push back when there are examples of Chinese of, of external pressure, um, you know we're seeing that most recently with, with these attacks on H and M and various other retail, retailers that you know had announced that they were concerned about forced labor in Xinjiang or they were somehow re-examining their supply chains, and suddenly China is saying you know we're going to cut you off from the Chinese market if you don't continue to purchase from Xinjiang. But you know even more broadly, the Chinese government, you know, being a classic dictatorship, um, is very concerned about portraying itself as an accepted legitimate government to its people. And, you know, it does this in part through censorship and propaganda, but it it makes an enormous effort to be accepted as a respected partner by the international community. And so a lot of our strategy at Human Rights Watch has been to, you know, deny it the legitimacy that would come from, from that, you know, unquestioning acceptance and to try to organize governments to speak out against the repression, to go so far as to condemn China and make it clear that um, in fact, Xi Jinping is is not accepted in his current form of governance by the rest of the world. Now, this is difficult to do because governments are very worried about retaliation. Um, We're seeing this currently with Australia, which has been the principal um, most recent target of Beijing's retaliation because the Australian government had the audacity to insist and an independent investigation into the origins of the coronavirus in Wuhan. Um, and that simple request, we can get into that in more detail later, um, but that is a you know, very dangerous topic for, for Beijing. In fact, we've seen just in the last um, day that even the World Health Organization, which normally doesn't say anything critical of China, um, is beginning to question the coverup and is beginning to say that there's need for more investigation, that the, this latest um, investigative report is incomplete. But our strategy really has been to pursue a safeties in numbers approach, to go to governments and say, you know, yes, you, you, you rightfully are worried about retaliation if you speak out alone, but if you speak out together with others, Beijing can't retaliate against the entire world. And we've done a lot of this at the UN Human Rights Council where we've been, um, we don't yet have the votes for a formal resolution. But what we've been doing is organizing governments in the context of either the Human Rights Council or sometimes the General Assembly in New York to um, sign joint documents condemning foremost what's happening in Xinjiang, sometimes also Hong Kong. And if you look at sort of what's happened over the last couple of years, you see how things have evolved in a positive direction. Because the first time we tried this um, about two years ago in, in Geneva at the Human Rights Council, I think we got on the order of 23 governments to sign on, but everybody was so fearful that there's a tradition that when there is a joint statement like this, that somebody comes and reads it formally before the Human Rights Council. And nobody would do that. They were all afraid. Nobody wanted to stick their neck out. Now, ultimately the British government read the statement and Britain had taken the lead for a while most recently, the German government took the lead. Um, this past October at the General Assembly in New York, the German government was able to arrange 39 governments to sign on. Um, Turkey issued a parallel statement. So they made a total of 40. Now, what's interesting is that with each of these statements, the Chinese government organizes a counterstatement and it puts together, you know, the thugs and dictators of the world. So you get, you know, Syria and Cuba and um, you know, Belarus and you know, all, all the the great um, you know, paragons of of human rights respect. And they sign on and say, what they're doing in Xinjiang is wonderful. But the numbers willing to endorse Beijing have been diminishing. um, And the numbers willing to condemn Beijing have been rising to the point that we're almost at parity. And that really worries China because we're getting to the point that it is not inconceivable that we could introduce a resolution at the UN Human Rights Council, which has never happened. And that they, China could lose, they could get condemned. Mm -hmm. Now we've seen um, elements of this in related issues of the Human Rights Council. Um, China is currently a member of the Human Rights Council. They were elected this past October. Four years ago when they ran for a seat, they received the most votes of any candidate from the Asia Pacific region, which they're a part of. This year when they ran, they received the fewest number of votes of any of the Asia Pacific candidates other than Saudi Arabia, which lost, and um, we wanted them to lose, you know. But, but what this shows is that if there had been one more candidate from that region, China could have lost altogether, you know, the way, the way Russia did several years ago. Um, and that, you know, was a real wake up call. There was also, um, every year the Human Rights Council elects a president from really among the ambassadors in Geneva, and this year was the turn of Asia Pacific. And most people who wanted to defend human rights Wanted Fiji to win. You know, a tiny country, but a very good ambassador, very pro human rights. That's who we were pushing for. Um, China put forward Bahrain. You know, basically a, a practically a province of, of Saudi Arabia. You know, a country that has is highly repressive and has no interest in supporting human rights. Um, the Chinese candidate lost overwhelmingly. Fiji is currently the president. So you know, mm-hmm. these are all illustrations of the fact that you know, even though Kimberly, as you mentioned, you know. China has Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative, you know, this trillion dollar effort to, you know, theoretically build infrastructure, but a lot of it is to buy friends and, and influence around the world, um, that this hasn't been enough. And that increasingly governments are turning on Beijing. And indeed, the swing votes in this effort are the members of the organization of Islamic cooperation, the, I think it's 56, 57 Muslim majority nations. Hmm. And they rightfully are looking at their fellow Muslims in Xinjiang and saying, we got to do something. You know, we can't just applaud this. Now, the OIC as a collective body is is really impossible to move because it's very much dominated by Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, um, both of whom are very much in Beijing's pocket. But we're seeing, you know, from more moderate Muslim majority states, you know, the likes of Indonesia, Malaysia, Afghanistan, Turkey, Albania, you know, Bosnia, Tunisia, Qatar. Um, there is a growing number of states that just don't want any part of this. And they're beginning at least to go neutral, to you know, refuse to support Beijing. And sometimes they're with us. So this you know, swing vote is what is going to get us a majority on the Human Rights right. Council. And it's what, you know, it's where the battle is right now. And you know, come back to where you started with this question, Beijing is very worried about this because this is a key part of its external legitimacy, which it wants to beam back home to show that Xi Jinping is an accepted leader.
1: Um, And do you think that if he was beamed back home, I mean, if this legitimacy is weakened enough uh, publicly, that China, inside China, where we know that it is the people that have to rise and make a difference, it's the only way that China can change, I mean, where's the where's the movement there? Where's the opportunity? The the light, the crack.
2: You know, I mean, with as you are suggesting, Kimberly, with a country the size of China, you know, we're we're not talking about you know any external action. You know, the most the rest of the world can do is to try to provide better protection for people in China who are trying to change things. Um, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of mitigating the repression. I mean, there are some indications, as I, as I mentioned before, that, um, you know, the Chinese government may well be shutting down to some extent, the mass detention centers for Turkic Muslims, but it's substituting forced labor, you know, is that progress, you know, who knows, but it, it's movement, it shows a, um, you know, it sh- shows a, a reaction. The government, you know, is going out of its way in speaking with the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, the former Chilean president, it's going out of their way to say she's welcome anytime. She can come in. Now she rightfully is saying, no, I don't want to show to her. I want, you know, my investigators to go in unfettered and look around. They're not allowing that yet. Hmm. But the fact that they are, you know, kind of feel the need to play this game shows that there is sensitivity there. Um, and I also think we shouldn't um, I mean, I don't purport to be a China expert, so I don't really know the internal politics, but I know enough to say that, um, you know, Xi Jinping's break from the the usual mold, really, um, that's been in place now for for, for decades, where, you know, the assumption is that a leader serves for two to five-year terms, that it's very much a collective leadership, there's then a succession plan, and Xi Jinping has broken that. You know, um, and it's really, you know, since Deng Xiaoping, this has been in place, and, and he, he is you know, really building himself as a dictator for life, that um, has opposition even in the elite levels of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's impossible to know how all this plays out there, but it's wrong to think of China as monolithic. And I think that this kind of internal reaction, this you know, granting or withholding of legitimacy plays a factor in this internal competition and could put China back on a more rights respecting path if it was sustained adequately.
1: Interesting. Thank you. Um, So I want to remind everybody to put your questions in the Q&A. And uh, so Ken, uh, switching to look at another country that potentially could be influencing China, what can only be interpreted as the next level of tension in the US-China relationship in Anchorage two weeks ago Xi's diplomatic envoys dismissively accused the US of hypocrisy when Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan raised human rights concerns. What role can the US as China's main competitor on the world stage still play in pushing China towards uh, the rules-based order?
2: Well, look, I I think, you know, let's take a step backwards for a moment. The Trump years were a disaster Um, and, you know, at first Trump was just you know cozing up to Xi Jinping and was going to use his you know personal diplomacy to somehow get what he wanted um you know ultimately he turned on China, but it was in such um, a you know self-serving unprincipled way that it had very little weight. So you know you almost got the sense that you know yes he would talk about human rights issues because his, his, at least his government would I don't know that Trump ever really did but You know, he would have the U.S. government speak about human rights issues, but he'd be happy to sell the Uyghurs off or sell the people of Hong Kong off for, you know, more soybean purchases from Iowa or whatever. You know, it was just a completely instrumental approach to China. Um, And this was, you know, part of a broader, utterly inconsistent human rights policy where the the Trump administration was willing to talk about the human rights problems of adversaries, whether it was, you know, Venezuela or Iran or Cuba or Nicaragua. But not of friends, you know. He cozied up to one friendly autocrat after another, including Putin. Now, um, the Biden administration has come in, and has, you know, one promise to be much more principled. Um, Tony Blinken yesterday, in releasing the State Department's annual human rights report, stressed that, you know, they're going to condemn friend or foe. They're going to be consistent. Now, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll have to see whether that actually happens. But he's saying the right thing. The other thing is that you know, Biden's big foreign policy speech just you know a, a few weeks into his administration stressed, as it should have, multilateralism. Because one interesting phenomenon is that you know even though the Trump administration basically withdrew the US government from the act of promotion of human rights, at least in any effective way, the global defense of human rights did not collapse. What we saw was that many governments banded together and, you know, building coalitions typically played a very effective leadership role on all the toughest countries. And so, you know, what I mentioned about, you know, what Britain and Germany did with respect to China, there are many other examples of that. You know, in Latin America, for example, the so-called Lima Group coming together for the first time in, and um, addressing human rights in Venezuela. So the what Biden understands is that he can't pretend to come in and have the U.S. lead the human rights effort again. You know, that's not credible given these wild oscillations in respect for human rights that we see when each administration shifts in the U.S. But it's also not the right thing to do anymore because you know the U.S. should be welcomed as a partner, but this is only gonna work with China or anything else if it's done in a genuinely multilateral way. So that's the rhetoric. You know, They've already said that they're going to rejoin or run for the, the Human Rights Council um, in October, the next elections. Um, there is a real effort, I think, to build partnerships with others, and that's what's needed. You know, there the big questions now are really, you know, sort of how to ratchet up the pressure. Um, the the efforts with respect to supply chains, I think, is potentially very powerful, but it, right now it's operating really just at the level of individual companies. Mm. You know, trying to balance, you know, the threat of retaliation from China versus. Um, the threat of, you know, their consumer base saying, you know, why are you complicit in this forced labor of all these Uyghur Muslims? Um mm-hmm. a more systematic, you know, governmentally mandated um, really requirement that um, people make sure that their supply chains are not infected by Uyghur forced labor. And that if they can't be sure, they don't use that supply chain, mm-hmm. you know, that would be very powerful. Um, I think there's really a, a need for much tougher effort to push for um, an unfettered international investigation into what's happening in Xinjiang. And, you know, I mean, to take another issue we really haven't talked much about, but the, um, you know, the coronavirus, this, this, you know, Wuhan, the, the, the WHO report yeah, to Wuhan was, you know, was really inadequate. And the question is now, okay, what next? You know, are they really going to push to get to the bottom of, you know, not simply, you know, what did China do to cover up during the early days of the the outbreak but where did it come from and you know did it come from the virological institute did it come from something else you know right now china is doing everything it can to block that and and really pushing for a genuine international inquiry there that is not subject to obstructionism by beijing is a very important thing to do
1: yeah the who report got uh got fairly criticized um for the lack of i mean not necessarily their fault but you know, the lack of access that they were given, that the data was controlled. Um, and in fact, uh, I read Annie's piece, Ken's uh, wife Annie uh, wrote a piece in foreign policy uh, unpacking the, t- the TikTok, the chronology of, of China's um, uh, suppression of information and its misrepresentations, um, which is really interesting uh, to read. Is there, uh, is there anything we can seize on in in those those facts that uh have been uh brought to light? Is are you know are they are they being taken to a higher level? Are are is Congress, are are international bodies looking at, you know, those misrepresentations?
2: Well, I mean I think that there are are two important dimensions to the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan. I mean, one, my wife, whose name is Dr. Annie Sparrow, she had this piece in, um, in Foreign Policy where she really describes how the Chinese government covered up for the first three weeks in you know, mostly January 2020, the human to human spread. You know, they maintained a fiction early on that um, every case of infection was directly linked to the Wuhan market, that it was not spreading among people. And they maintained that fiction to the point of sacrificing healthcare workers because um, they couldn't afford to kind of reveal the lie. So they, um, you know, would repress, um, reprimand, censor healthcare workers who tried to warn their colleagues. They would literally tell healthcare workers they were not allowed to wear protective equipment because that would, um, they said, you know, give rise to panic. But what they really meant is it would expose the lie. And this is important because, um, you know, we don't have, we have to think beyond COVID-19. You know, what about the next pandemic? And the critical early warning that we have is from our healthcare workers. And you know, given that SARS began in China, that, that um, COVID-19 began in China, I mean, it is not inconceivable that we're gonna have another um, outbreak, you know, viral outbreak starting in China. Um, and what are you gonna learn? If you're, if you're a Chinese doctor, a Chinese healthcare worker, and you see what happened to the doctors in Wuhan who tried to warn people, you know, this time you're gonna just keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And we're a lot worse off because, you know, by China denying that there was human-to-human spread during those three weeks while literally millions of people fled Wuhan, um, it enabled the virus to go global. And indeed, this um, downplaying of human-to-human transmission misled the rest of the world for a while. You know, it's why there were so many um, Italian healthcare workers who died because the Italian authorities were so busy looking for people who would come immediately from China that they weren't focusing on the spread among Italians, which is what was killing the the healthcare workers. So, I mean, that is an ongoing issue if we want to really be prepared for the next pandemic. But the, you know, the other really open question is, you know, where did COVID-19 come from? And, you know, the the dominant view is that it came from bats, um, and that may well be true. But there is, you know, some suspicious evidence pointing to the Wuhan Virological Institute. And this was an institute which was doing research on coronaviruses. It was doing so-called gain-of-function research, which where they try to make viruses stronger in order to better understand them. Um, And there is an indication that several of the workers in the lab um, in the months before the official outbreak in December um, had come down with a disease, the symptoms of which were consistent with either the flu or the coronavirus. WHO, the investigative team said, can we have, you know, the medical data of these individuals? No. You know, in fact, they are, don't have any of the individualized data for any of the early um, victims of the coronavirus. Um, and so, you know, we're still going. I mean, China at this point, I think, it accepts that it, the virus didn't begin in the, in the Wuhan market. But, you know, these earlier cases, the handful of earlier cases would point to where it did begin, and they refused to turn that over. Why is that? What are they hiding? Mm-hmm. It's very important to know this if we're going to prepare for the sure. for the next possible pandemic. Thank you. That's super interesting.
1: We we actually have a lot of questions lined up. I just have one more question that I um, would love for you to address. When we were talking about how the U.S. could, uh, you know, what the U.S. could do to 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 impact China more strongly. Um, on its rights records. And one of the things it has done along with uh, Canada, the UK and the EU is to to basically label it. Well, the Biden administration didn't label it but they endorsed the labeling of it as a genocide. Um, Although Human Rights Watch has not come to that conclusion. But does that legal categorization give any added ammunition to international bodies such as the UN or the International Criminal Court? What does that
2: mean? Is that helpful? I mean, look, Every obviously you want to call mass atrocities of this sort by the proper name. And whether that's genocide, crimes against humanity, or just, you know, large-scale detention, you know, forcing people to give up their religion and culture. uh, You know, I think in many ways, the precise label matters less than a clear factual understanding of what's happening. Now, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the genocide determination is being made, I think, Based not so much on mass slaughter, you know, which is how most people think of genocide, but um, it can also be genocide if you are, you know, essentially denying, um, a, you know, a national, ethnic, religious group the opportunity to reproduce, and and there is, you know, some evidence, but again, we don't really know the extent of it, of forced sterilization. Um, you know, what we don't really know is whether the forced sterilization of the Uyghurs. Is more than the forced sterilization that we're seeing elsewhere in China. Um, clearly, the mm. couples apart is preventing reproduction. Um, the forcing of children into state orphanages, where they are indoctrinated while their parents are, you know, off in detention, is a separate issue. So these are all horrible problems. We don't really know the scope of it just yet. Um, and I think the the real, you know, the urgent next task is to get an unfettered UN investigation in there, um, which you know, China is resisting um, as fiercely as it can. So um, you know, all of this, by all means, we should you know, use the appropriate labels, but at this point, we really need to mo- know more facts. Mm, thank you. Um,
1: I'm gonna turn now to the questions, because like I said, we have a, a, quite a few of them. So um, the first question, Ken, is China's now on the UN Human Rights Council which is interesting because it never uh, ratified the, uh, you know, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and everybody else there has, but it hasn't. But anyway, it's on the Human Rights Council. It was appointed last year to a special pa- council panel. Sorry, a special panel, which will select the next group of special rapporteurs. Um, should we be giving up on the council? for bringing China to account on human rights if it's uh, it's kind of the fox
2: inside the chicken coop? Yeah, I mean, no, I would not give up on the council. I mean, you know, the critics of the council and often, you know, the the most vociferous critics are defenders of Israel because the council criticizes Israel so much. And they try to say, oh, you know, look at, you know, there are the following abusive members are on the council. Therefore, let's give up on the council. Um, And in fact, you know, we would certainly be happier not to have these members there. The original idea of the Human Rights Council was you would have competitive elections and those competitive elections gave us the opportunity to you know, vote in positive people and, and keep the thugs out. That worked for a while, but um, the regions are beginning to game the system and they tend to put forward the same number of candidates as openings with the result that the likes of China and Russia get on the council. But they still represent a minority. Um, we win in the council all the time. Um, around, you know, Myanmar, Syria, Sudan, Eritrea. I mean, I could go on and on. It's, it's you know, many, many countries do get condemned by the council. Certain and the more powerful ones like China have been able to escape it. Um, similarly, Saudi Arabia domestically, although Saudi Arabia and Yemen is subject to UN Human Rights Council scrutiny. Um, Egypt has so far avoided it. But, um, you know, as I was, the you know, part of my reason for going through those numbers earlier is that Um, we're getting to the point where it's not inconceivable that we can win a resolution at the Human Rights Council. So we are not at all giving up on the council. Um, We, in fact, are actively right now recruiting moderate Muslim-majority countries because they can push us over the edge and give us the majority that we need.
1: Yeah, as you said, the swing vote, it was reminding me of the election here. (laughs) Um, Going after those door-knocking um, on, on those, uh, those, those members of the uh, OIC. Um, okay, here's, here's our next question. Thank you. Um, this is, uh, I'm going to try to uh, let you know who's asking the question, but this one happens to be anonymous. Um, for go- global companies sourcing in China, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, making statements on forced labor in Xinjiang, as H&M has learned, and you mentioned uh, the cotton issue. There are severe economic consequences of taking a position. But from a human rights lens, companies are also concerned about retaliation and security threats against their own China-based employees. How can companies navigate this complex landscape? Um, What's the role for
2: governments versus global companies? Okay, well, I mean, let me start with the end part of that question, because the easiest way to relieve companies of, you know, the heat that they get for taking a human rights stand on China, is for governments to mandate that. And so, if governments say, you know, given the state of knowledge, you know, given the lack of independent inspection, we are barring companies from sourcing out of Xinjiang, just as an example, that would um, be very powerful. There'd be no retaliation against companies because it'd be the government's fault. You know, so that is, you know, if companies are thinking this through, I know there's kind of this instinctive allergy to governmental regulation, but this is a regulation that they should welcome. And indeed we're, we're seeing this, um, you know, more broadly on the supply chain issue because, you know, kind of the big brand name companies are um, vulnerable to consumer boycotts, to a kind of loss of their reputation if their supply chains are found to be tainted, not simply in China, but any place in the world. And so we see that increasingly companies the big ones are pushing for governmental rules and regulations on supply chains. Um, they're in that case, worried about you know, competition from kind of <clears throat> lower no-name companies that you know, don't have a reputation to lose, so they don't pay much attention to their supply chain. But that same logic, you know, that governmental regulation can be a friend of companies trying to do the right thing, I think would apply in the case of China. Um, you know, obviously, if you're an indip- just a single company operating alone, um, you have to balance, you know, how important is the Chinese market versus how important is your global reputation? And um, I mean, even H&M, which was one of the first to say they were gonna stop buying cotton from Xinjiang. I mean, and, and Xinjiang represents, I think about 20% of the world's supply, almost all of China's um, cotton is produced in Xinjiang. Um, so that was, you know, an important statement there. It wasn't just that they were expressing concern, they're saying we're not gonna be complicit in, in these atrocities. Um, and now, you know, Beijing is coming back and saying, well, you may not have access to our market. But I think the more companies that do that, the less that kind of retaliation is is possible. And of course, the more governments mandate it, the less the the companies are the subject of retaliation. Hmm.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it seems like there's safety in numbers and then safety if you have political cover. Um, Here's a question from Ted Picone. who is on the council, the Pacific council, given rising geopolitical tensions in the region and growing support for the Quad as a counterweight to China, how do we see India's role? Concern is that recent worrisome backsliding in India's human rights behavior may get less attention or condemnation in order to support collective a collective approach to Beijing.
2: Yes, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, Ted, you're right, that um, one of the things we've warned the Biden administration about is that in their eagerness to you know build an alliance with the Modi government against China, this they should not be ignoring what has been a you know a serious backsliding on human rights um, in India um, under the BJP and, and 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 Modi. So now, in terms of you know India's role on human rights generally, they are it's rare that they will um, support human rights initiatives targeting a particular country. Um, There's been their longstanding position, you know, frankly, because there's so much that can be criticized within India and they don't want, you know, that vulnerability. Uh, Now on China, um, there clearly is, you know, geopolitical tension, um, a struggle between India and China. And and so it's not inconceivable that India could join efforts to spotlight human rights abuses in China despite its usual practices, but it's going to bump into the problem of consistency. And, you know, I mean, even in Myanmar right now, where, you know, it's been, you know, sometimes the borders open, sometimes it's closed for, for you know, people fleeing the junta's repression in Myanmar, you know, India does not have a consistent external record on human rights. Um, and obviously its internal record has been degenerating. Thank you.
1: Um, Jane Olson has a question. How serious, and, and just for those of you who, May or may not know Jane. Jane was chair of the board of Human Rights Watch for many, many years and remains an incredible source of inspiration on human rights. Uh, Welcome, Jane. How serious is China's military expansion and aggression in the sea? What about its extraction of precious metals from mines in Africa and
2: elsewhere? Um, yeah, I mean, I, look at on, on the military aggression, I mean, this is kind of beyond my competence, so I, I can't really say much beyond what is kind of widely known in the papers, you know, that, the, um, yes, they've gradually taken over these, you know, islands and islets and little spits of land in the South China Sea and are militarizing them. Um, that has kind of become de facto accepted because nobody is going to bother going to war over that, even though there are minerals at stake in the South China Sea. But I think the big threat is Taiwan. And you know, if Beijing were to militarily move on Taiwan, there's a big risk of a war. You know, the US would be under enormous pressure to defend Taiwan. Um, you know, Taiwan's obviously a lot closer to mainland China than it is to the United States. Um, you know, this would not be a pretty affair. But I think that that's the um, form of military aggression that most people are, are very worried about. You know, and would Xi Jinping do this? You know, it's gonna be in his mind a kind of a trade-off between, um, you know, how much does he need the rally around the flag legitimacy that uh, a military adventure would bring to him versus, you know, the enormous economic setback that invasion of Taiwan would represent since clearly, you know, there would be, um, you know, widespread sanctions and just general dislocation of the economy. So. Um, You know, I'm hopeful that he's not that rash, but you just never know and it probably depends how how desperate he feels at home How insecure he feels I mean in terms of you know, the mining of um, in Africa the you know, the Belt and Road Initiative a lot of that is about gaining access to um, To to commodities of various sorts that China covets out of Africa and it is um, it, you know, it had been advertised as a trillion dollar effort. It clearly is being scaled back. And the reasons for it, that scaling back are not entirely clear. I think part of it is just, you know, China is going through a tough patch at home. And so they don't have the resources to throw into this. Um, part of it is also is that Belt and Road is getting a bad name because it's seen as serving China um, more than many of the supposed beneficiaries. You know the, um, you know some of the projects are seen as debt traps, whether it's the Sri Lankan port or the, you know Mombasa Nairobi railroad in Kenya. Um, some are are seen as, you know, mainly benefiting um, Chinese contractors. You know, not so much locals. The lack of even basic transparency, the kind of transparency that has become more normal with World Bank or IMF loans, um, is absent with Belt and Road Initiative um, loans, and so. A lot of them, you know, maybe half goes to the project and half goes to the leaders Swiss bank accounts. You know, there's just no accountability there.
0: Mm.
2: So, you know, through these variety of factors, um, it is less and less popular by the people of these countries, even if more autocratic rulers are happy to pocket a good part of the money.
1: Hmm. Wow. Um, Well, the next question I have is coming from Martha Sardinius. Um, And it's a question about Chinese intelligence. And I think that what I'd be curious to hear and kind of Martha going to take your question, she she's wondering if it's mostly about copying tech and copyrights and why they stayed away from the U.S. Did they stay away from the U.S. presidential election? I don't know. But um, but I think that it's maybe a, a, a broader question about about, you know, Chinese surveillance and its use of of its technology to, uh, uh, you know, creep into other systems and or perhaps you can talk a little bit about how it's impacting uh, the Chinese people.
2: Look, I I think that, um, I mean, I have no special insight into Chinese intelligence. What, What I do know is that the Chinese government is extraordinarily attentive to what the Chinese diaspora says. And so there is an active effort to monitor the diaspora, you know, whether it's students or workers or others abroad, um, and to pressure them to stop any criticism of Beijing. Um, doing this, you know, by letting them know that they're being watched, but also by threatening family members back home. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this. I mean, the BBC has an account out this morning of a, you know, Uyghurs who were involved in helping the BBC describe the sexual abuse of Uyghur women in Xinjiang. And um, these Uyghurs in the West now, you know, in exile are being contacted by Chinese intelligence and basically saying, you know, you keep this up, your family member is gonna be in big trouble. Um, And so there's, um, you know, there are no qualms about using um, that kind of, um, you know, really blackmail with with one's loved ones back home to silence comments abroad. Um, But when we think about Chinese censorship overseas, it's a mistake just to think about ethnic Chinese people, because all of us are also victims, in a sense, of what is becoming a global censorship effort. So, you know, when the the Houston Rockets general manager, you know, tweeted support for the Hong Kong um, pro-democracy protesters, you know, China came down on them like a, a you know a bunch of bricks, and it was you know it was a nothing thing. But it shows how utterly sensitive China is to any criticism and its willingness to use this economic cloud, in this case, you know, a huge television contract with the National Basketball Association, to censor that kind of commentary. And, you know, you see this in Hollywood. I mean, you're all in LA. um, You know, Hollywood movies now, because so many of them show in China, are censoring themselves to make sure that they're China palatable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're seeing, you know, more and more that companies, individuals, kind of anybody with an economic interest in China is either self-censoring or is actively being censored by Beijing. Um, And this, you know, I mean, it's bad enough that the Chinese people are subject to this, but increasing the rest of the world is subject to this kind of censorship.
0: Hmm.
1: Thank you. Um, Next question actually comes from um, my cousin through my husband, uh, Margaret McQuaig Johnston, who's up in Toronto and is actually uh, a China expert um, and is especially watching China now with the trial of the two uh, Canadians, the two Michaels as they call them. But her question is there's an international discussion of having a D10 group of democracies the G7 plus Australia, India, and South Korea stand up to China. Would you see that group focusing on human rights?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, uh, Margaret, any group that, that addresses China is gonna be utterly ineffective unless it includes human rights within its agenda. So I would completely expect that a, you know a D10 of that sort would. Um, I think in many ways, though, when, you know, this is implicit in my earlier comments, Um, The most important thing that the big democracies can do is not simply kind of continue to organize these joint statements among themselves, but also to reach out to the rest of the world. Um, And this is kind of a numbers game, but there are, you know, there are governments clearly in Latin America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, who would be willing, you know, with a little bit of encouragement to speak out about what's going on, say, in Xinjiang. And, you know, one thing the the big economic powers can do is to say, you know, we encourage you to speak out, but, you know, and if you're subject to retaliation, we're gonna help you, you know, we're not gonna leave you dangling. But things of that sort and really building a global coalition, not just among the usual suspects, but among the, you know, the the global south where China sees itself as um, somehow representing them or more broadly accepted. um, If that begins to break down, that really dents Xi Jinping's legitimacy. And I think that that effort to sort of build a broader North South coalition around Chinese human rights issues is the most important thing that the big Western democracies can do. Hmm. Thank you.
1: Um, And actually uh, I'm just looking at these list of questions. There's another one that wanted to know the latest on the case of the two Michaels. Um,
2: Well, about, I mean, about a month ago, the Canadian government led a very good initiative. I forget the exact number, but they must have had 40 some governments sign on. And it was all done very diplomatically. It was an initiative against um, arbitrary detention in state to state relations. No country was ever named. But what this was about was governments that seize foreign nationals as hostages for foreign policy purposes. And um, that's obviously what China is doing in the case of the so-called two Michaels, um, two Canadian citizens whose only offense was being Canadian citizens in China, um, China detained them to try to get the Huawei CFO released from extradition proceedings in Vancouver, where the U.S. is seeking her extradition to the United States for alleged sanction violations with respect to Iran. Um, and it's just a you know it's a blatant case of, of hostage taking. Now, this is um, you know Canada has been very strong on this point. Um, And, but I think they are, you know, and it was a a good sign that so many governments rallied behind them, but it shows the depths that the Chinese government is willing to go in order to try to get its way. And I don't, you know, I don't sadly see um, an immediate prospect for the release of the two Michaels, um, you know, so long as the prosecution of the Huawei CFO proceeds, which, um, and I would, you know, I'd be very reluctant for the Biden administration or the Canadian government, the Trudeau administration to, to succumb to that kind of blackmail. I would hope
1: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Good. We, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Um, Do U.S. universities, this is an anonymous question, do U.S. universities aid and abet Chinese human rights abuses through their engagement in China and via the presence of Confucius Institutes and large numbers of Chinese graduate students in the U.S. Should the behavior of U.S. universities change? And if so, how?
2: What's interesting, Human Rights Watch has been quite involved in developing, you know, basically an ethical code for how U.S. universities can engage with China in in both of the the respects that you mentioned. Um, You know, on the one hand, you know, operating campuses or branches of campuses in China. On the other hand, you know, welcoming Chinese students um, at U.S. universities. And, you know, as a general matter, I think these kinds of university exchanges are very good. Um, it, It, you know, it helps people understand each other. Um, We certainly want, you know, more Chinese citizens having the advantages of an kind of open, critical thinking U.S. education. But we have to be, you know, very aware of the censorship efforts. You know, the Confucius Institutes are really, you know, largely become propaganda machines. And I think we have to be careful about universities sort of taking the money involved in that, because it's all Chinese government money, um, and then trying to silence their professors or limit what can be said on campus or restricting symposiums or seminars. Um, there's a real threat of, you know, censorship of of academic freedom. Um, The Chinese government has no qualms about trying to exercise that censorship. And it is hard for universities to resist when there's a lot of money at stake. And so, you know, it is often the best solution to that is don't become dependent on the money to begin with. You know, recognize that this is strings attached money and, you know, find other ways to teach Mandarin or to welcome Chinese students without the, the Chinese government involved. You know, similarly with branches overseas, you know, I would be very reluctant to spend a lot of money on real estate or, you know, infrastructure that you're reluctant to lose. You know, the best kind of overseas um, presences are very light footprint ones where if the Chinese government starts trying to censor, you can just pull out and there's not a huge loss. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if there are major institutes built or the like, universities are less likely to pull the plug and that's when they become very vulnerable to censorship. Yeah, of course.
1: Um, I think we have time for one more question, and I'm going to take moderators' uh, privilege to kind of take one of these and shape it a little bit. Um, Madeline Bluteru asks, how could we better counter the Chinese influence and rhetoric over human rights issues in other countries when China tries to retaliate and export its vision of human rights? And I guess that one of the questions that's been in my mind is, you know, how do we convince you know, there there's uh, there are countries and populations which look at China's technocratic authoritarianism and say, "Wow, that looks like it's working. It's delivering the goods to its people, is it?" But it's apparently delivering. It tries to say it's delivering the goods to its people, um, but you just have to trade off some rights in order to get the, get get what you need to live. And that that's 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 the question I have: is how do we convince? People that perhaps that's not the, that's not the way that th- the form of government that might be best suited um, for them?
2: No, Kimberly, that's a very good question. And indeed, you know, that's the argument the Chinese government makes all the time. You know, look at how many people have been pulled out of poverty. You know, we needed to violate rights in order to get here. Now there's you know, a certain premise in that is worth questioning. Um, I mean, yes, there's been rapid economic growth, you know, from the lows of the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, which were imposed by the same Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, the same autocrats, the same dictators that had utter devastation have now basically left the Chinese people to themselves. You know, is this the brilliance of the Communist Party or is it just the the, the vigor and initiative of the Chinese people that, you know, where suddenly the Communist Party backed off in the economic realm. Um, But I think that the, it's always very important to kind of scratch the surface behind these claims. And so, you know, yes, the Chinese government stopped the, the pandemic within China, but did they start the pandemic through their instinctive censorship and, and crack down on the doctors who tried to warn us? You know, um, is that why we have a pandemic today? Um, because of the same dictatorship that, you know, for the time being at least, has stopped its spread within China. Um, this idea of, you know, everybody being richer, um, you know, the Chinese government, interestingly, doesn't like to talk about even economic rights. You know, of course they don't wanna talk about civil and political rights. We all know they flout those, but they don't even like to talk about economic rights because economic rights require that you look at the fate of the worst off people of society to see is life getting you know, better for them or are government resources being devoted to them. China doesn't want that inquiry. You know, they don't want you looking at the rural residents or the you know the migrant workers who had to leave their kids back home and are living in decrepit conditions outside of Shanghai or Beijing. They want you to talk about um, GNP, you know, about gross domestic product. And and they you know are happy at that macro level, <clears throat> but they don't want um, you know, a focus on the individual. And so I think that the best way to fight back is to insist on focusing on the individual. You know, say, okay, these are your big claims, but how are actual people being affected? And we're not going to look at just the elites living in the big cities. We're going to try to look at everybody else, and then the picture isn't so pretty. Um, and you begin to see what life is like when you're living under a dictatorship that has no constraints, that is utterly arbitrary. They can choose to, you know, imprison a million people because they have the wrong religion or speak the wrong language, and that is, you know, not such an attractive picture for the rest of the world.
1: Thank you. Good. Good answer. Um, Listen, we are out of time. Uh, the hour went really quickly, and I just want to thank thank you, Ken, first of all, uh, for giving us your time and your incredible wisdom and and all the hard work you've done at Human Rights Watch over these past almost thirty years, um, trying to help right the world's wrongs. And uh, of course, I'm very proud, and I know Alicia is, and anyone else on this call who who's with the organization to 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 be supporters uh, of the organization and be involved. And I wanna thank uh, the Pacific Council uh, for hosting this again and the Edgertons um, for this series. And and finally, I wanna thank all of you for joining us um, for this interesting conversation and um, we'll look forward to seeing you at the next one. So bye everybody, thanks so much.